0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, So That You May Believe, the study of the seven signs Jesus performed in the Gospel of John.
1: So that you may believe. And in this series, we're looking at the seven signs that are listed for us in the Gospel of John. And we're told there at the end of the book that the reason these are given to us or presented to us is so that you may believe. And so we're working our way through them. Today, we come to the fourth of the seven signs. So let's bow our heads and pray as we open God's word. Lord, thank you that you love us and that you care enough about us to speak to us. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive everything you have to speak to us from this message. Help us to understand the text, but not just understand it mentally. Lord, we ask that you would help us to uh, have it it reach down into our hearts, Lord, that we might be transformed by it. And so, Lord, we dedicate this time. We dedicate ourselves to you in this this time of study and opening your Word. We ask that you speak to us and that we would receive everything you have for us in Jesus' name, Amen. Yeah, how many of you can remember a time in your life when you were when you were legitimately hungry, like actually hungry? I, I think that uh, like hunger, like real hunger, isn't something that a lot of people in our society experience as much. So we're much more on like, we need to portion control and count our calories. Those are kind of bigger priorities for a lot of people than just like being hungry and and needing our needs met. I was thinking back, you know, my kids, they'll sometimes tell me, Dad, we're starving. Usually it's on like a 30-minute car ride, you know, like halfway through. We're starving, we're not gonna make it. And I'll be like, no, you're gonna be fine. And what I like to tell them, which they love, I like to say, kids, don't you know, One time, Jesus didn't eat for 40 days, and he was fine thought about eating rocks and throwing himself off a building, but he was fine, and you're going to be fine. You ate like 30 minutes ago lunch, and just eat a banana, you're going to survive, right? That's what I tell him. But listen, there was a time in my life when I I can remember being legitimately hungry. I moved to Hungary. uh, I was 18 years old, and my sending church, let's just say it didn't give me very much money, so I, I actually made less than the Hungarian minimum wage. But the thing is, the people I was serving with in Hungary, they didn't know that. They just assumed that since I was from America, like I was loaded. And so I was not. I lived off this monthly allowance of $200, and $150 of that went to my rent. So that meant that I had $50 a month to eat, which comes out to $1.60 per day, except in my favorite month of the year, February, when you get a little extra, except in leap years, which are a bummer, right? Uh, I had a $50 to eat, like $1.60 a day. I didn't have a credit card to fall back on if I ran out of money, which is probably good because I probably would have racked up a lot of money, you know, eating. I wasn't always good at managing this $50. So what happens is you got $50. If you don't manage it, and by the end of the month, you run out of money. And if you run out of money before the end of the month, you just don't have any more money to eat from. And so there were days when I just didn't eat at all. And people started noticing that I was hungry. I was losing weight. And so some people felt bad for me. They started giving me food. But sometimes the food they gave me wasn't the best food that they had or that you could give someone. And so one time, for example, someone gave me an entire kilogram of peanuts not like not like in the shell but like shelled peanuts right? just like the the seeds so they gave me this bag of peanuts, and I was like, okay, cool, thanks. So I put it in my cupboard, and then one time at the end of a month, I really was completely out of money, and I didn't have any food. I opened up my cupboard. The only thing in my cupboard was this bag of peanuts. So I said, that's going to be dinner tonight. So I ate this entire bag of peanuts for dinner, a whole kilo, just like two and a half pounds of, of peanuts. As I was about, let's say, like three-quarters of the way through the bag of peanuts, I started thinking to myself, you know, these peanuts – tastes kind of bad and then I looked at the bag and they had expired like over a year ago right so I was like oh well I finished the bag and that explains why I got really sick afterwards but another time I got invited to a birthday party but it was the kind of birthday party that's at a restaurant but everybody has to pay for themselves so I had three dollars and so I said I can afford I looked at the menu I can afford one thing egg salad. So I ordered the egg salad, and later that night, I went to the hospital with salmonella. That was what happened. So let me just say, being poor and being hungry is not that much fun, okay? Some of you guys have probably been there yourselves, but listen, for most people in Jesus' time, most people, hunger was a normal part of everyday life. They didn't have the same access to food that we do today, Again, many people in our society, we have to be careful not to eat too much. We're counting our calories. We're doing portion control. We're trying to discipline ourselves not to eat unless we're hungry. That wasn't a luxury that people at that time, most people had, right? So you ate when you had the opportunity. And uh, and for many people, even in the world today, like hunger is a regular part of everyday life and experience. Now, in our passage today, we're going to look at a miracle that Jesus performed that had to do with hunger and satisfying that fundamental need. It It's actually the only miracle other than Jesus' resurrection that is mentioned in all four of the gospel accounts. And this is the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. It had to do with satisfying the hunger of an entire group of people. Again, that fundamental need that all of us know and experience. But as we're going to see, this miracle was about much more than just meeting physical needs. This miracle was a sign pointing to who Jesus is and how he came to satisfy your deepest hunger and meet your ultimate needs. The title of today's message is Lasting Satisfaction. And what we're going to see in our passage today, here's our summary sentence, our outline for the passage. I'll give this to you, and then we'll break it down and use it as our our guide for studying the passage. So here it is. The feeding of the 5,000 was a sign that Jesus is the greater prophet promised by Moses, and that he came to fulfill your deepest hunger and meet your greatest need. So let's take that sentence and let's break it down as we study this passage. So once again, the feeding of the 5,000. We'll begin there in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. By this time in Jesus' ministry, we're about halfway through Jesus' time, three and a half years of ministry, we're well into it, and word about Jesus had spread. A lot of people were interested in him, they were intrigued by him, and we know that huge crowds of people were constantly gathered around him and following him. And so Luke's gospel tells us that at this point, Jesus decided that he needed a time to get away with his disciples, and so they tried to break away from the crowds and spend some time alone as, as a group, just him and the disciples. So what they did is they snuck off, they broke away, they got in their boat, and they headed across the Sea of Galilee, away from the populated area, which, by the way, the populated area of that region is all on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. They left that populated area, went to the other side of the sea, which is an area which you might have heard of. It's called the Golan Heights. It's a mountainous area, but it's also, even to this day, very desolate and uninhabited. Very few people live there. Well, Jesus and his disciples, again, they're trying to get out of town. They're trying to get away from the crowds for a little bit. But then, as they're on their way over there, or maybe as they land on the shore, they look and they start seeing just people coming from every direction. Some having walked around the lake, others perhaps having taken boats to follow him. But it says in verse 3 that Jesus went up on the mountain this high place in the Golan Heights and then he there he sat down with his disciples now when it says that Jesus sat down it means that Jesus sat down to teach. You see, this is an interesting thing. In our culture, when someone's going to speak to a group of people, generally that person stands up and the people listening sit down. Well, in that culture, it's kind of the opposite. When a rabbi was going to teach, generally the posture of teaching was to sit down. You'll notice this, by the way, if you read through the Gospels. Take a look, like, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus' most famous sermon. The very first verse of Matthew chapter 5, it says that when Jesus went to teach, he went up on this place and he sat down and he began to speak. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes and speaks at a synagogue and it says that he stood up to read the scriptures, but then he sat down and began to teach. And so sitting down was the posture of teaching for rabbis in that day. And so when we read here that Jesus sat down, it means that he was sitting to teach. And this aligns with the other gospel accounts, which tell us That Jesus went to this place, these crowds came, and so Jesus began teaching them, and he taught them all day and even into the evening. And at one point, Jesus looks out at these people and he can see that they're hungry because they haven't eaten all day. And so it says, verse 4 Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now that might not seem like a very important verse, but it's actually really important for our text. And we're going to come back to this verse in just a moment. This verse doesn't just tell us what time of year this took place, it took place in the spring. It also helps to prepare us to understand the significance of what Jesus is about to do. We're going to come back to this again in a minute, but I want you to think about it just for a second. What happened at the Passover? The Passover was that time when Moses, the great liberator of Israel, he led the people out of slavery in Egypt. And where did they go after they left Egypt? They crossed the Red Sea and they entered into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, they had a problem. Their problem was they didn't have any food. And the people were afraid that they were going to starve to death but God provided them with manna from heaven, bread from heaven, miraculously, wonder bread, if you will, to feed them and sustain them. Now, keep that story in mind as we read through this passage. It says in verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself Knew what he would do. This is interesting. Jesus already knew what he was going to do in this situation. He wasn't worried. He wasn't at a loss. He wasn't stressed out. And yet he asked Philip this question in order to test him Philip, what are we going to do? Where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? Now, of all the 12 disciples, why Philip? Well, one thing we know is that Philip was a native of a town called Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is kind of the, the closest large town to this place they were at on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So maybe that's why. Uh, other theories exist, like that Philip was kind of the events coordinator, right? The, the guy who did the catering for, the, for events for Jesus. I don't know. But either way, Jesus asked Philip this question. In order to test him, it says... Now, why would Jesus do that? Is he just kind of messing with him? Is he kind of playing games with him? Is he just giving Philip a hard time? Now, I would say this. Obviously, that's not the reason. The reason is because Jesus wants to use this opportunity, not just to get something done. He wants to use this opportunity to teach his disciples. In this case, Philip. He wants to bring him into this situation in order to build his faith through what's about to happen. So Jesus is drawing him in. He wants Philip to really see and feel the tension of the situation, how truly impossible this situation is, so that when Jesus then performs the miracle, Philip will understand what a truly incredible thing this actually was. And as a result, his faith will grow stronger. You see, for Jesus, these moments, when something needed to be done, they weren't just moments in which he wanted to get something done. He wanted to use these moments to teach his disciples, to prepare them for how they ought to think in future situations. And friends, let me tell you this. God does that same thing with us. There are challenges that you face in your life. There are situations that you go through. There are things that you pray about. And you know what? God already knows how those situations are going to turn out. He's not up there stressing out about it. He's not up there wringing his hands and saying, Oh no, I don't know what to do. What should I do? I hope this is going to turn out okay. No, listen, just like with Philip, Jesus isn't stressed, but he allows us to go through these situations that put our faith to the test. You see, when you go through a difficult situation, sometimes don't you just wish that you, could, that you could just know how it was going to turn out in the end? I mean, even if you knew that it was going to turn out the way you didn't want it to, just knowing how it would turn out would at least give you strength and confidence to say, okay, and move forward and be able to face that situation. What makes things difficult, isn't it? It's the not knowing that makes it difficult. That's what causes fear and anxiety. But, but that's also, by the way, where faith comes in. That's where faith comes into the equation. Faith is the confidence that says... Even if you don't know what the future holds, you do know the one who holds your future in, your, in his hands. And you know that he is trustworthy, and he loves you, and he's working all things together for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. That's what we're told in James chapter 1. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith Produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason why God allows situations in your life which test your faith is not because he's mean or callous or doesn't care. It's not because he's playing games with you or being petty with you. It's because he loves you and he wants you to grow. He already knows how it's going to turn out in the end, but he knows it's also an opportunity for you to walk through that situation in a way that will exercise your faith so that it can grow. So Jesus says to Philip, Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed this many people? And it says in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. Philip quickly just ran the numbers in his head, right? He concluded, in order for every person here to have just a bite of bread, not even a meal, but just a bite, it would cost a lot of money. 200 denarii was somewhere around eight months' salary, right? So we're talking, let's say, $20,000, $20,000. And Philip's like, look, even if we had $20,000, which we don't, uh, there's no store around here that has that much food. Now, listen, we often read about this or think about it as the feeding of the 5,000. But keep in mind, many of the gospel accounts, including this one, tell us that that number 5,000 was only the number of men who were there. In other words, it didn't include the number of women and children. So counting women and children into the equation, we're probably talking around at least 10,000 people. So purchasing that much food wouldn't even be possible. But, but again, the entire point of why Jesus is testing Philip in this thing is because Philip's only thinking in terms of money and inventory and stock and supply. Jesus is trying to help Philip to begin thinking in a whole new way. So when he faces situations like this in the future, he'll be prepared to think in a way that says, Jesus, I've seen you do miracles before. I know you can do a miracle here. The way that says, Jesus, I know that the prophet Elisha, for example, fed 100 men with 20 loaves of bread, but you, Jesus, you are greater than Elisha, so surely you can provide for these people here and now if you so choose. It says in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? You know, what's interesting about Andrew, Jesus' disciple, Every time we see him in the Gospel of John, we see that he's introducing somebody to Jesus. That was kind of his thing, his ministry, his gig. He, he said, here, you come with me. Let me introduce you to Jesus. The first time we see him in chapter 1, he's introducing his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. This time is the second time is here when he's introducing this little boy to Jesus. The next time we'll see uh, Andrew, he's introducing some Gentiles to Jesus. What a cool ministry, right? It says, hey, just come with me. I'll introduce you. Come and meet Jesus for yourself so here's this young boy and all he's got is five barley loaves and two fish by the way barley loaves were considered to be poor people's bread back in that time and what that tells us it tells us something about this boy that he wasn't just giving from abundance right but that what he was offering he was a poor kid this is probably all he had the loaves that we read here don't think like the big loaves you see in the store think more like rolls right that's why he's got five of them And the fishes, the word that's used there for fishes literally speaks of a small fish, like you could think of a a sardine, for example. In other words, this wasn't a lot of food. This was enough for one person's lunch, the, the lunch of a small boy, actually. And so... Most likely the reason why Andrew brings this boy to Jesus to say, hey, look, this boy's offering his lunch, it isn't because Andrew's like, here's the solution to our problem, right? It's more like, hey, here's this boy, and isn't this cute? You know, just wanted to honor him almost in a little patronizing way. Hey, he he wants to give his lunch. Oh, that's cute. Okay, cool, but that's not gonna help us, right? But Jesus looks at what this boy brought and he says, I love it, right? Let's go. Verse 10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took. The loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So, they, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Those five loaves and two fish, in the hands of that little boy, they were just lunch. But when he took what he had and he gave it to Jesus, Jesus took that meager offering and multiplied it and used it to do something great, something that was a blessing to a multitude of people. Jesus took it. He blessed it. He multiplied it. And not only did all the people eat, but look what it says in verse 12. They ate to their fill. Right, hunger, food insecurity—these are real things, very prevalent in the ancient world at that time. So, when you had the chance to eat as much as you wanted, you would eat as much as you possibly could. So these people gorged themselves. Right? This was like the Italian restaurant, right, where they keep bringing you as many breadsticks as you want. That's what this was like. Just keep bringing them, and the people were like eating them until they couldn't eat anymore. And then at that point, they picked up all that was left over. And it was more than they actually began with to, to, at the beginning. It was a miracle. And there's a lesson here for us, just practically. Whatever you may have, whether it's a talent or an ability, if it's money, if it's time, if you will give that to the Lord, he will take it, he will bless it, And he can multiply it and he can use it to serve and bless many people just like he did with this little boy's lunch. That challenges me. I hope it challenges you too to have the heart that this little boy had. That rather than holding on to what I have for myself, keeping it for myself, I want to take what I have and dedicate it to the Lord. Give it to him to use for his purposes. Because in my hands, it won't accomplish very much. But in his hands, he can take that little that I have to give and use it in much bigger ways than I could have ever imagined. So let me challenge you today. Let me challenge you to consider what that might look like in your life. I don't know what it is in your life, but you probably do. What are the five loaves and two fishes that you have? It may not seem like much, but if you'll give it to the Lord, he can take it and use it and do more with it than you could have ever thought or that you could have ever done on your own for his glory and for the benefit of others. This brings us to the next part of our sentence. The feeding of the 5,000 was a sign that Jesus is the greater prophet promised by Moses. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. What this is referring to is a promise that was given by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy, really interesting book in the Bible, it's a record of the speech that Moses gave at the end of his life. At the end of his life, before the people of Israel were about to cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, Moses gave them a long speech, kind of his farewell address. That's the book of Deuteronomy. And one of the things that Moses told them, they're in Deuteronomy Chapter 18, he told them this One day the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. The Jewish people, even to this day, they tend to hold up Moses as the greatest of all the prophets. They even refer to themselves as the followers of Moses sometimes. And this is really important. This is a really important passage because in it, Moses himself told the people that one day God was going to send them another prophet who would be like him, but greater than him. And in that case, they were to listen to that prophet, give heed to him. And here's the rest of what Moses said about this future prophet there in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He said, And the Lord said to me, They are are right in what they have spoken. He said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This prophet Moses was speaking of, is the one that we call the Messiah. He was speaking about the Messiah. Moses, think about it. He had led the people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Moses had given them the law of God, the word of God. But one day he said, God is going to send you someone even greater. Someone who will set you free, not just from the physical bondage of slavery, but from the ultimate bondage of sin and death. God is going to send you someone who would not just give you the law, but someone who will actually fulfill the law. Someone who will, who will be able to save you from the penalty of the law that you have incurred because you have failed to keep the law and its perfect standards. This is why we read in the Gospel of John chapter 1, that when John the Baptist came on the scene, this was one of the questions people asked him. Are you the prophet? What does that mean, the prophet? They're referring to the prophet who was promised by Moses, the prophet who Moses said would be greater than him that God was going to send. Now, we know from ancient Jewish writings from around the time of Jesus that when the prophet came, right, when the Messiah came, the people believed that the sign of the coming of the Messiah is that when the Messiah came, once again, manna would come from heaven to feed the people of Israel. This was one of their expectations. Now, manna, of course, was that miraculous provision of bread that God provided in the wilderness to feed the people of Israel on their journey out of Egypt to the promised land. Every morning, it says in the book of Exodus, manna would appear on the ground and the people would collect it, but they could only take as much as they could eat that day because it didn't last Right? It was was something that would go bad very quickly. And so they had to trust God every day to give them their daily bread. So think about this scene and remember what it said in verse 4. When did this take place? Around the time of Passover. That's important because here's Jesus, the greater than Moses. And he's with the people in the wilderness. And he does a miracle to provide them with bread to eat. Except, unlike the manna in the desert, the bread that Jesus gives lasts. It doesn't go bad. It it lasts much longer. They gather it up to be able to eat it later. This miracle was a sign that Jesus was the Messiah, the prophet promised by Moses who would be greater than him. And that's why it says in verse 14, right, the people They saw this miracle and they understood that exact thing, that Jesus was the prophet promised by Moses, the Messiah. Now check out their response in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him their king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus realized they're putting two and two together. They're realizing that I'm the Messiah, and if I don't get out of here soon, they're going to grab me and try and force me to be their king, drive out the Romans. They don't get it yet, so Jesus slips away, and in our Next week, we're going to see how Jesus got back over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You're not going to want to miss that. But that brings us to the next part of our sentence, which is this. The feeding of the 5,000, it was a sign that Jesus is the, the greater prophet promised by Moses and that he came to fulfill your deepest hunger and meet your greatest need. Look with me down at verse 25. It says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus is saying, you guys are seeking after me because you want me to give you food that perishes. They didn't only want more bread, right? It wasn't just about bread. It was about also the fact that they wanted Jesus to be their king who would lead them against the Romans. They were saying, Jesus, you're our guy. You can meet all of our needs, all the needs we have, the need for food and the need for freedom. Those are all the needs we have, and you can meet our needs. What Jesus is addressing here is the fact that these people were only focused on their material needs. And what Jesus wanted them to see is that they also have Spiritual needs. They're not just people who only have physical needs. They also have spiritual needs. And their spiritual need is just as urgent and even more consequential than their physical need. That's why Jesus says there in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is making a contrast between the material and the spiritual. Material things and spiritual things. Just think about this. If you were to go down to one of these big festivals that happened in our cities, if you were to go down to one of these big festivals in one of the cities around here and set up two tents and put signs on these tents, on the one tent you'd put up a sign that says, free money and free food. And on the other tent you'd put up a sign that says, spiritual satisfaction and eternal life. Which one of those tents do you think would would draw a bigger crowd? I think it's, it's pretty obvious. Uh, now, on the one hand, it's important that we see from this, from this exact story even, we can see God absolutely cares about people's physical needs. That's a fact. Your physical life matters to him. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But here, Jesus is giving now the other side of the coin, Many people only live their lives with concern for material things and without the same level of concern for the spiritual realities of life and death and the matters of the soul. Remember this, the same God who gives you your daily bread, that same God said, man does not live by bread alone. In other words, you are more than just a body who needs food to survive. You have a soul And it would be a terrible mistake for you to spend your life only focused on and obsessed with material things and ignoring your deep spiritual need and the fact that Jesus has come not just to care for your physical needs, but to meet your ultimate, your greatest need, the salvation of your soul. Look at what it says in verse 28. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, okay, how do we get this spiritual bread that leads to eternal life? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Eternal life, the salvation of your soul, it isn't something you can earn. It's not something you have to work for. It's something that Jesus came to give you. He came to do it for you, and the way to receive it is by believing in Him. Listen, the, moment, the, the material things of this life, the material things of this world, they can only ever satisfy you momentarily. Have you experienced that yourself? That the material things of this world, the satisfaction they give, it is only momentary. It's fleeting. In every one of us, there is a deeper hunger. In every one of us, there is a spiritual hunger a spiritual craving. We're longing and looking for substance. We're looking for reality. And that's because you were created by God and you were created for God. And until you enter into relationship with God, you will never find the lasting satisfaction that your soul craves. You know what we do sometimes? I know I've done this myself. We try to numb that deeper hunger, that spiritual hunger. We try to numb it by distracting ourselves with material things. But you know what happens when you do that? It's kind of like eating cotton candy, right? When you eat cotton candy, it's never as satisfying as you think it's going to be. It doesn't have any substance, and you just find yourself sticky and gross and feeling bad about your choices in life, right? Like, and and you know what? You're still hungry, And if you surround yourself with hobbies and toys and entertainment and you just keep yourself really busy because that's what we like to do, right? How you been? Oh, super busy, man. Just slammed, right? That's what we do. If you keep yourself just really busy, entertained, whatever it is, you might be able to numb that hunger in your soul, but it won't go away. It'll still be there in your quiet moments when you lay down, when you're alone, it'll still be there. It won't go away. It won't be truly satisfied. And that's why Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, the only way to experience the lasting satisfaction that your soul desires is through him. Because even though you were created by God and created for God, Your default condition for every one of us, our default condition as human beings is that we're separated from God and we are spiritually dead. The only way that you can be brought from death to life, the only way that you can have eternal life is through Jesus and what he did for you. Look at what Jesus says now in verse 47. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The manna from heaven, the miracle bread that fed 5,000, those were signs Signs pointing to the true bread, the living bread, Jesus Christ. The only one who can satisfy your soul and fulfill your deepest hunger and meet your greatest need. And it's possible because he gave his flesh, his body for you on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took the judgment for your sins in order to remove the barrier that existed between you and God. In his life, Jesus fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements and he offers that record, that righteousness, that holiness to you as a gift. It's a great exchange. He took the judgment for your sins and in exchange, he gives you his righteousness so you can be reconciled to God. You're getting the better end of that deal and he did it for you because he loves you. And the way to receive that gift, we read here, is by believing in him. To believe in Jesus means to trust in him to cling to him, to rely on him and what he did for you to redeem you. So I want to encourage you to do that today. And I want to encourage you that as you do that, you will get to experience the lasting satisfaction in the depth of your soul that can only come through him. Friends, the feeding of the 5,000 was a sign that Jesus is the greater prophet promised by Moses and that he came to fulfill your deepest hunger and meet your greatest need. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray.
0: You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.